0: I don't know about you, but this past week was one for the books, at least very interesting to say the least on the national political stage. Protest against the newly elected president broke out nationwide, and it's been this way for most of my adult life. Now, again, the last four presidents are uh, President Clinton, President George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and now President-elect uh, Donald Trump, uh, conservatives thought that the end of the world was coming when Bill Clinton was president. then uh, back in two thousand, it was liberals turn to freak out when George W. Bush lost the popular vote but won the electoral college in two thousand and eight. Republicans got to let their anxiety run crazy as they had, they often termed Uh, President Obama as demon-in-chief. And then President Obama won re-election and many Republicans uh, let their anxiety go crazy again. You know, I, I would say today, regardless of political party, now many face the unsettling reality that the most volatile political candidate in recent memory now has the ability to start wars with other countries. And regardless of where you come down on your political issues, uh, President-elect Trump tends to elicit a sense of anxiety. It seems to be that which kind of has characterized a lot of his life. If you listen to those who are truly frightened, they sense that evil really does have the chance to reign over our world. And there is a precedent for feeling as if God seemingly doesn't act quickly, as we understand the word quickly, to aid oppressed people. You don't have to look too far into our nation's history, let alone our world's history, to see that there are times and seasons where evil went unabated for years on end, and we are baffled to ask why God didn't intervene. Hence, the recent fears and expressions of those fears are rooted in the prospect of possible suffering, and that is understandably unnerving to many. Uh, Many of us can know and experience on a regular basis and have experienced the feeling of powerlessness that causes the deepest of anxieties. Perhaps we see that someone has power or authority over us, and they're effectively forcing us to do something against our will. We feel trapped. Well, great atrocities are usually born of this kind of abuse of power. And the possibility of a person having evil intent and then being intent on harming us or negative affecting our lives can cause considerable strain and emotional pain. Now, whether these fears are rational or irrational, I can tell you from my experience that they're nonetheless stressful. They're real to me or real to you. To some extent, we've all experienced this. You've seen or experienced international terrorism. You've seen or experienced racial injustice and prejudice. You've seen or known awful supervisors in the workplace. You've seen or known potentially someone who is just an unbearable spouse or a person in your life who borders On crazy. And these things make you wonder whether or not you're actually facing genuine evil. From a philosophical perspective, the existence of evil is itself a challenge to the Christian mind. Uh, Many have said that the problem of evil, or the origin of evil as a concept, is the Achilles' heel of Christianity. The raw charge is. That if God created everything, then he must have created evil too. And if God didn't create evil, then how do we explain its existence? Philosophers such as John Stuart Mill have argued that the existence of evil demonstrates one of two things. Either that God is not powerful at all or that he is not altogether good. He either can't stop evil or chooses not to do so. Modern theologians like R.C. Sproul, who was a professor of mine, have conceded that it's difficult to find a satisfactory answer to the difficult question of the origin of evil. However, Dr. Sproul does deepen this mystery by offering an interesting twist from one of his theological heroes, St. Augustine. He says, quote, Augustine argues that though Christians face the difficulty of explaining the presence of evil in the universe... The pagan has a problem that is twice as difficult. Before one can even have a problem of evil, one must first have an antecedent existence of the good. Those who complain about the problem of evil now also have the problem of defining the existence of the good. Without God, there is no ultimate standard for the good so if you 're going to argue against God because of the existence of evil you 've got to at the same time concede that God exists, or else you don 't have a moral standard at all. Now, most theories on the existence of evil usually claim that it is a simple byproduct of man 's free will. We choose evil and it came into the world and that it that still leaves us with a, a bit of a quandary, and that if god created man with the potential for evil, it must have logically existed in his mind when he created human beings in the first place. As you see, the origin of evil is going to be one of those subjects that you may recreationally wrestle with for the rest of your life, but you'll likely never pin to the ground. Now my aim today is not to be able to solve an unsolvable theodicy, as they call it. I can't provide answers to the deepest questions about how evil exists in the world. Not only are those answers very difficult to come by, for the best of theologians, I am not even a theologian. Uh, I'm a pastor, and uh, my doctorate was in communications, which doesn't qualify me for much of anything but to be able to speak clearly. Uh, People say about people with doctorates in communication, we, we don't have a lot to say, but what we do say, we say really, really well, you know. So my purpose today, I'm going to, for our purposes today, I'm going to assume that the resurrected Jesus told us to pray, deliver us from evil, and therefore evil must exist from which we are to be delivered. That's the simple apologetic of a West Virginia University graduate. If Jesus seemed to imply or clearly state that it existed, that's going to be the baseline for my activity and belief systems. And Jesus is the one who told us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Last week's sermon, I commend it to you on our podcast. This week, we're going to look at his next phrase, deliver us from evil. Why would Jesus have brought it up if it weren't something that we were supposed to actively pray for deliverance from? Now, some have seen evil as a force in the world, almost like an independent force that goes against God. Some have said evil is just Satan himself and all that emanates from him, and Satan himself, a created being. I don't know how that would be possible. Others have said that evil is just behavior that is the opposite of the holiness of God. And what I'd like to do instead of delving too deeply into all of those options is to instead take this opportunity and given the, the tension that exists in our culture and in many of our hearts, I would like to take a look at how evil has been used in service to God's plans What I hope is that you leave today not simply knowing that evil exists, but knowing that you pray, deliver us from evil, and in so doing, pray God's providence and protection over evil, but also an absorption of a peace that knows this. No evil happens to us that God didn't know about in advance and allow and ordain, and what I mean by that is that God is not shocked, and nor is there um, no purpose to the evil that might transpire in our world in some way we are going to conf- we're going to pray that God would take today 's text and free us to really know that God is the superintendent of all things, that Jesus, the resurrected Savior, really is in authority over everything in heaven and on earth. So to do that, we're going to look back at a terrific narrative, one of my favorite Old Testament stories. And you'd have to, if you want lots of detail about the relationship of uh, Jacob to his brother Esau, to Jacob to his wives, to his children... Um, Genesis 35 through 50 is the comprehensive section of Scripture that you can look at Jacob's life. What I'd like to provide for you is uh, some spark notes, or or they called them cliff notes when I was a youngster. These are going to be the way I got through high school, which was never reading a book. I'm going to give you a shortened Reader's Digest version. Uh, I'd like to provide for you sort of the narrative of Joseph's life. He was the 11th of 12 sons born to Jacob, and I'd like you to, to hear this as best I can tell this story and, and then be able to understand in context what was actually going on in Genesis 50, the text that was read for today's sermon. And I believe that at the end of this, we'll see that while we are distressed and affected negatively by evil, that ultimately we have confidence and peace to know that God is still even using that that nothing, nothing escapes the eye and the plan of our Father. So this great narrative begins where Israel, or somebody that has been known as Jacob, one of two sons born to Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. uh, uh, I would tell you that this son Jacob was destined by God to be the father of the nation of Israel, and hence was renamed Israel. And so the nation of Israel is merely the 12 tribes that were produced by his sons. One of these sons was his favorite. His last two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, were born to his favorite wife, Rachel. Now, you can see that the tension was already set in the family, that uh, there was sibling rivalry, there was spousal rivalry, so things weren't great when Jacob gave to Joseph the infamous technicolor dream coat, the luxurious coat of many colors. The oldest brothers, so inflamed with anger and envy, sold Joseph into slavery and then told their father, that he'd been killed. The Midianite slave traders who now owned Joseph then sold him in Egypt to an officer of the pharaoh, a guy named Potiphar. And while in abundant and uh, blessed service to this, this servant of Pharaoh, Joseph was hit on by Potiphar's wife. And because he refused her advances, She falsely accused him of sexual assault, and Joseph was sent to prison. While in prison, he did a favor to a fellow prisoner and interpreted a dream that liberated this prisoner to go back and serve Pharaoh and should have led to his quick release from prison. Instead, he was forgotten and spent two more years in the slammer. All of these things seem to be conspiring, all of these slights, all of this pain and all of it born of others doing things that were evil. Well, upon his release from prison, Joseph rose in the ranks to become Pharaoh's right-hand man, and a dozen or so years later, as fate would have it, famine enveloped the entire Middle East, and Joseph's brothers had to come to Egypt and ended up having to beg him for grain to keep their nation, their family, alive. Upon realizing it was his brothers, he obviously said, I forgive you, let me provide for the family. But once dad died, once Israel passed, the brothers were starting to freak out. They wondered whether they would justly now be punished by Joseph for the evil they had done to him. And there is much I think we can learn about evil from this story, and my hope is that we leave today knowing that Jesus is Lord over all of it. So the first thing I have for you, the first thought I have for you, that seems rather obvious that the basic Bible teacher could be able to extract this from the text, but I think it's worth emphasizing, and that is that evil always produces grievous consequences. Evil always produces grievous consequences. I'll begin reading now from the text that we'll pick up from the shortened version, and these verses are actually word for word. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. You know, when tempted with sin, some of us will often think, this is no big deal. Or one of the great lies of Satan for some at the moment of temptation is to think, who will be harmed by this? And one place I've seen this evidenced in our culture and in our generation is is the sin of online internet pornography, and I I talk to young men and old men across the board, and this is the primary struggle of the Christian man in 21st century America, certainly, at least the world I'm familiar with, and one of the keys to being able to combat this is understanding that this is not a victimless crime. You may think to yourself, well, who is this harming, but if you start to unpack the layers of corruption and money and darkness that really surrounds this whole industry, you realize that your use of that is actually negatively affecting hundreds of people in a really bad way. It is part of an evil, corrupt system. And, and if you're not careful, what happens is you get duped into thinking that my sins really don't make that big of a difference my sins really don't harm others. I've known people who've had bad experiences in marriages. I had a situation in my first church where um, there was a, there was an incidence of infidelity, and when we asked one spouse, if the offending spouse, how to characterize how badly they had hurt their spouse, you know, they said, "Well, I, I think I've hurt them pretty badly." And the man I was doing the co-counseling with said, no, 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 you think that you have punched them in the face and really you have shot them in the head. You see, we always love to soft sell how negatively our sin affects other people. We never like to think that our actions actually do have grievous consequences, that they grieve people's souls. And Joseph's story reiterates the premise from Jesus' teaching That we would pray to be delivered from evil. Now, it's a simple observation that his brothers did evil to him, and it says so in the text. However, even though Joseph had seen God move mightily in his life to show that he hadn't been abandoned by the Lord, Joseph wept when they spoke to him, not simply because of his father's name being mentioned, but because of the deep wounds that must have been taken to heart by Joseph. Imagine the feelings of rejection, the lovelessness, regardless of what an arrogant poop he was at age 17. who? What 17 isn't? What 17-year-old isn't? You know, in, in his 17-year-old sin and pride, his brothers disposed of him and cut him off and he missed out on a dozen years of growing up with his little brother Benjamin and being near his father and mother, let alone the whole tribe, think of how, how sad one's heart must be to have experienced that, the pain associated with that, and the challenge when you're wounded that deeply to not become bitter. You see, Joseph wasn't a sphinx. He wasn't a wooden character whose emotions weren't hurt. He, like other human beings was devastated by the evil. Have you ever experienced this kind of moment of healing? Um, you're wronged. And then finally, when the person who wronged you comes and humbly apologizes and begs your forgiveness, you're moved emotionally, uh, not only because you've been working through this on a personal level, but you sense deep within you a healing is beginning or is fleeting or is within you. And all of this emphasizes the grievous consequences of evil. We need this deep saving of our wounds. Evil grieves our soul because it is the opposite of how God wants us to be loved. And this is perhaps the best way to understand evil, is the antithesis of godliness, the antithesis of the loving character and attributes of our Father. And it is true that our sinful desires are the birthplace of much of it. James, in his letter, wrote in chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. So you see it right there. Evil always produces a grievous consequence. Somebody, if not you, somebody else is going to be harmed by this. However, it's also clear from Scripture that Satan is real. Jesus experienced a genuine encounter with Satan. You can listen again to last week's sermon to get that play-by-play. Jesus said to his disciples in John 17, 15, I do not ask you to take them out of this world. He was praying to his father, but to keep them from the evil one. The apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from evil. The evil one. See, on one hand, the evil we are delivered from is evil action undertaken by other sinful people. That's what we're praying for. And on the other hand, the scriptures speak of a spiritual battle that exists in the heavenly realms. We see Jesus fighting this battle and casting out demons. He can even call them by name. You see, The Son of God had a unique capacity to see into the spiritual realm and know so much more than we do about what's taking place there. There are places in Scripture where we're given specific ideas about what is going on in this realm. And what our role is, and we are told in the Lord's Prayer to pray, deliver us from evil. Ephesians 6 is another passage that is often cited as kind of a handbook for spiritual battle talking about our offensive and our defensive weapons and the things that we bring to this war that is not physical but instead spiritual and that our weapons of warfare are not of our hands but they are mighty for the taking down of strongholds That said there aren't a ton Of scriptures that give specific practical advice on how to fight. And yet there is a far too much extra-biblical so-called wisdom from the Spirit that gets packaged in Christian books that doesn't really come from scripture. And this supernatural instruction that some super-prophet has discerned all by themselves can lead you a long way from the gospel of grace and burden you with notions that aren't God's biblical plan for your life. So I would say, be careful. Be cautious, overly so, when somebody starts giving you a how-to booklet to do things in the supernatural realm that aren't talked about specifically in Scripture. This is practically why PRISM is not comfortable going beyond Scripture in our teaching about the spiritual realm. One thing we do have clarity about is that evil always produces consequences that grieve souls and certainly grieves the Lord. Now, if the next step in this message was let's pray and the benediction, you would have reason for fear and despair. I can encourage you today that this is not the end of the story. It is true. That evil always produces grievous consequences, but this is also true, and this is the good news. Evil never reigns over God's providence and God's purposes. Never. God's never thrown. God never loses. Even when evil seems to triumph on earth, God superintends that. If Satan were the the birthplace of some evil scheme, he would simply be playing into God's hands. That's the pattern we've seen from Genesis all the way to Revelation, that God is never wringing his hands. There was a book that was big when I was just out of college called This Present Darkness. It was a novel by Frank Peretti, terrific writing, enjoyable to read. But when I was in charismatic churches, it was really odd to see people start to adapt the language of this book as if it was biblical. And so they had this notion in this book that the angels would be in these fights with the demons and that they would be weak unless people were praying. And so God's people were kind of like the power-up button on the PlayStation, you know? And and so what, what happened was, it's like people actually started getting in prayer groups and they they called them, let's get the prayer covering going. And they actually started adapting the language of this spiritual warfare book as if God's warriors, God's heavenly warriors needed anything but God and he needed our help. Well, I would say that the significance of this section is seen in that evil is controlled, is overseen and ordained as part of where we're going in this world. And and I'd like to demonstrate that, not only from the text, but also from the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Let's begin with verse 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You see, Joseph has this remarkable uh, depiction of Christ, uh, a, a, a really a foreshadowing of the, of the mercy and grace that we receive from Jesus. The significance of this section of Genesis is that God had purposed to use the free will of mankind, even their most evil intents, to bring about good. Joseph saw that he was merely a servant of God and therefore couldn't bring judgment to his brothers for their evil. He made it clear that his position was, as is the case with all created beings, including Satan, under God and this is true for you and me you see our evil intents are foreknown our evil actions only take place when a god allows them to do so he could intervene he chooses not to from time to time but sometimes he does when others do evil things for us it hurts it wounds us it's painful it has a grievous consequence But it hasn't happened apart from the plan of God. Jesus, according to his own testimony, has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Nothing happens without his say-so, including the bad stuff that others may do or attempt to do to you. We are assured that while we may not understand it right this moment, God reigns over all. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, a verse we often quote, it should provide great comfort for us. It addresses the skeptic. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. We see the Apostle Paul answering the modern skeptic's claim about God's impotence or indifference. You see, God works all things together for good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So, Joseph's brothers knew they were doing evil, and yet God knew in advance that they were going to bring about, by their evil actions, the means by which Joseph would save the entire nation of Israel. God would superintend and meld all events together, bringing about a result that was good for us and for his glory. When I was a teenager, the big uh, rage was the Rubik's Cube, you know, and, and, and I was never one of those people that could figure it out. It, you know, I would twist that thing all the way around a hundred times, and it still didn't look like I had any means of getting it all to look just like it was supposed to, one color on each side. So I did what any young man would do. I cheated and broke it and stuck it back together with all the colors facing the right way. See, the, the great minds of the world can take gargantuan Rubik's Cubes now, not just, you know, nine squares a side, but they have some big ones that are like, you know, I can't even remember the number. But it, see, the great minds, they know how to push, move just what to do to get everything just where it's supposed to be. And, and the mind of God is so beyond anything we can comprehend that even when he doesn't want something to happen, but he foreknows it's going to happen, and he ordains it to happen, it's because he's bringing it all to work for his glory and our good. This story has a significant connection to Jesus as well. In addition to it being a a depiction, really, a type of Christ... God's interest in saving the nation of Israel was not just for the children of the 12 sons of Jacob. It was, he cared for them, but it was also the future plans God had for one of Jacob's sons. You see, Jacob's son Judah was an older brother of Joseph and one of the older brothers that had him sold into slavery In spite of that, God had planned that one of his great, 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 great grandchildren would be the Savior of the world, Jesus of Nazareth, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the reason that we sit in this room today, a man who 2,000 years ago was crucified to pay for the sins of the world and then and then rose from the dead to demonstrate that he was by nature divine and our sins were completely forgiven. This Jesus was the offspring of Judah, who was kept alive by Joseph's rising to the ranks of the highest levels in Egypt. So he was able to feed them and care for them and bring them to Egypt and take care of their offspring. And then many, many, many generations later, This family would produce a son, miraculously, who would save us from our sins. You see, all of this is made possible because God ordained Joseph's suffering. This was the means by which, the evil intents of men were the means by which Joseph was going to be able to save his brothers. You see this in the life of Jesus, too. Even as we return to the communion table, today we remember the sacrifice of Jesus to pay for our sins and secure for us eternal life. Even as we do this, remember that Jesus himself knows the anxieties we experience when evil people do evil things. It was the evil of the Romans and the Jews that conspired to falsely accuse him, to beat and scourge him, and to crucify him for our sake. And from the beginning of time, it was the foreordained plan of the Father to use the evil actions of men to be the means by which we would be delivered ultimately from evil. Talk about your big paradoxes. The fact that our Savior suffered at the hands of evil men has always been a comfort through the ages, not just because Jesus experienced the pain which, of course, does give him a great level of sympathy for you and I amidst our fears and anxieties and suffering. But because Jesus was able to look past that and see that God was foreordaining all of it to bring to pass something that would glorify God and be ultimately for our best. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 3, we are encouraged, to "...consider him who endured such hostility." against himself so that you may not grow weary or be faint-hearted. And then in Peter, 1 Peter 4.19, we're told, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. These things are reflections for us when we feel like there are great hostilities and there's great anxiety and there is great injustice. Even as we protest, if you felt so inclined to do some injustice in our world, we as believers are still called to absorb and to know a peace that says, God is foreordaining all of this for his good. And, And even stuff that doesn't go our way. That God has a plan for all of that too. And we are supposed to, in light of the gospel, rest even as we do what we think is right. You see, in the gospel, we see the ultimate deliverance from evil and the reminder that he who saved us by submitting to evil and the evil intents of others realized exactly what Joseph did. You see, Jesus had the same mindset, what they mean for evil. The Father is going to use for good. And so Jesus would encourage us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil so that we could both celebrate the reality that he is going to keep us from doing evil things, he is going to protect us from evil things, but then even when evil seems to triumph for a day... It is only playing into the hands of God to bring about that which would please God and glorify Him and really be for our good when it's all said and done. So it requires from us a willingness to be intimate with God, to be able to trust Him enough to say, I'm going to be at rest and believe that you are sovereign, even as it appears. The things aren't exactly going my way in my marriage, in my office, in my culture. I'm going to be at rest because you have taught me to pray these things. Deliver us from evil. Let's pray to that end today, shall we? Lord, it is easier said than done that we'd be a people that would trust you that even when things don't go our way in life, whether we lost an election we'd hoped to win or we lost a promotion we thought we deserved or we lost a loved one or a spouse in a really harmful way. Father, it's really hard for us to believe that even that, it seems so trite to even mention it, that that would be still a part of your plan but it is clear from your word that both Joseph and your son Jesus, Father, were mistreated and you managed to work all that into a marvelous plan that what others intend for evil you are using in your foreknowledge and in your sovereign providence and your in your in your decreeing from all eternity that you were going to take the evil behavior of others and 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 put it into something that would give us great rest that you know what you're doing that you take things that aren't and make them as though they are God give us rest and most importantly give us Father your grace to seek the solace that we require for our souls to be reminded of this reality the peace that we would find as we seek you Father, without knowing you personally, we aren't going to trust you. So I pray that you would once again infuse us with grace to find the space in our everyday to hear your voice, assure us of these truths. Before Brooks Institute's communion this morning, I want to encourage you to take a minute to just reflect on those places where you're clinging to fear because... You can't trust God. And He wants you to be able to rest. Would you release that to Him?